song at the Good Friday service on Friday, and uh, it was worth hearing a second time, maybe a third and a fourth, and thank you all. Thanks to all our musicians. Uh, We've been well served this morning for sure. Well, we're obviously here to celebrate and think a little bit about the resurrection this morning. That much is clear, but we can't talk about the resurrection without talking about death. The two go together. And death is an uncomfortable subject because death is like an armed thief in an alleyway who you see at a distance in the darkness and he strikes fear in our hearts. And if, that, if death is that armed thief, then we really can't live well and we can't live with freedom and joy until... We disarm that thief until he doesn't have authority and power over us, until he can't strike fear in our hearts. And really, that's what all religions and all philosophies are trying to do at their core. I read a philosophy book a couple years ago, secular book, and he said, really what all religion and philosophy, every system is trying to do is to disarm death and the fear it brings to teach us how to truly live. That's the goal of every system that has been put together. They're trying to defang death and the authority and power it has so that we can truly live. And one Christian author said it like this, if you cannot make sense of death, you, may, you cannot make sense of life either. And no philosophy that will not teach us how to master death is worth two pence. He's British. Two pence to us. The unknown of death is like a wild animal that's loose in the yard that keeps you from enjoying the outdoors. So what we want to do this morning is spend a little bit of time thinking through what the Scripture teaches us about both death and resurrection so that ultimately we can you and I can truly live life as God intended us to live it. And you've probably heard some of these things before, but even if you've heard them before, we are forgetful people. I had a boss who I worked for for several years in California. I was a younger guy, just a few years older than, than I am, and very bright guy, ran an incredibly successful business, and this guy would forget every year that it was his birthday. <laughs> He would wake up on his birthday and start in a normal day, get breakfast, head off to work, and completely lose sight of the fact that it was his birthday. And sometime in the morning, his wife would have to call him at work and remind him that it was his birthday. We are forgetful people. Maybe you don't forget your birthday, but you probably forget other things along the way. And so it's good. And Scripture tells us over and over again that we need to be reminded of certain truths. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and that's exactly what Paul is going to do in our passage this morning. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 in chapter 1, and Paul's going to remind his listeners of something that they've heard before. And it's important for them to hear it again. Verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He's going to remind them of the gospel, the basic truths of Christianity that we never move away from, we never get beyond. And he's going to use this reminder of the gospel to launch into 
In this chapter, he's going to launch into a discussion of one of the key elements of the gospel that sometimes we we push to the side. And sometimes when we present the gospel, we don't necessarily think that the resurrection is an important piece of that presentation. But Paul would say it's absolutely essential, absolutely necessary. And he spends this entire chapter thinking about the resurrection after he's begun the chapter talking about the gospel. So it's an important piece of the gospel. And this whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, which I'm sure you've read, maybe you've read this week, it's basically his explanation of the gospel and the resurrection. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to affirm the reality of Christ's resurrection and say Jesus really was bodily raised. He wasn't some ghost, some spirit. He was bodily raised from the grave. And there are implications of that for you and I. Because Christ was raised bodily, you and I will be raised bodily. We will receive a new resurrection, new creation body that will be similar to this one, but different. And so he goes into that explanation throughout this chapter. And what he's saying is, this is what your future looks like. This is what you can anticipate. And this is good news. It's gospel news. It's good news for us. Now flip to the end of the chapter. He comes to this magnificent summary here. And he says, this resurrection, this receiving of a new body is going to happen to you in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. It's going to happen instantaneously and it's going to be a moment of change. Look at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we won't all die when Christ returns, but... We shall all be changed. Look at the emphasis there on the change that's going to happen. Now, verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Whether you are alive at the coming of Christ or whether you die 500 years before Christ returns, your physical body will be changed and you will receive a resurrected body. And it will happen instantaneously. Look at verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. See the difference there? It goes from perishable to imperishable, mortal to immortal. So this whole chapter he's he's been building to this. He's saying the resurrection is secure, it is sure. And when it happens, it's going to bring about a change in your body. And now, at the end of this chapter, in verses 54 to 58, he's going to show us some of the outcomes of this. These are truths that are secure now. Here are the implications of this. So, this morning, we're going to look at four outcomes of the resurrection that make sense of death and life. So, the goal here is to make sense of both death and life, the life that we're living now, And Paul's going to give us four outcomes that will help us to make sense. Four outcomes of the resurrection. The first one of these is that death is defeated. And this is in verses 54 and 55. Now, before we get to those verses, we talked a couple of minutes ago at the beginning about how death is this armed thief, this intruder who's seeking to do us harm. Before you can really understand the resurrection and the joy that these resurrection truths can bring, we, we need to understand some of what Paul teaches about death. 
Who is death? What is death? Why is it so powerful and so significant? If you're going to celebrate the good news of the resurrection this morning, you have to come to grips with how important death is and how powerful death is. And so I want to take you back into this chapter, and I want to show you a couple of ways that Paul describes death. Look back at verse 21 in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 21, he says, For as by a man came death, by man has also has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. So death comes by a single man, and in that single man, death spreads to everyone. Death came into the world through Adam. That tells us that death is an aberration. It's it's an intruder into God's good world. God's original design and creation was not for there to be death in this way. Death is like an unwanted house guest who sneaks into your house, he's an intruder, and he lights a fire in the back room trying to do you harm. That's what death is. He's here to corrupt God's good world. He's an intruder, and he spread to all men and influenced all of us. But look at what else Paul says. Look at verse 32. Skip down a little bit there. Right in the middle of that verse, he says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that our perception of death, death is not just something that we encounter at the end of life. Maybe in the few moments before you die, you think about death. Death, your perception of death is something that shapes the way you live today. If the dead are not raised, Paul says, then that has implications for your daily life, for the way you go about eating and drinking. The basics of your life will be impacted by your perception of death. If death is a final black termination point and there's nothing after death, then go party, go do what you're going to do because tomorrow you die and you pass away. Every person on earth lives their life, his or her life, with a philosophy of death in the afterlife. You may have never articulated that philosophy. You may not be able to write it down clearly, but... You are living with a perspective on death and the afterlife and what happens to you. Death is an intruder that shapes the way you live now. And there's one final thing that I want to show you that Paul says about death in this chapter. Look at verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is the last enemy. He's the ultimate foe that you and I face in this life. Why? Well, at the fall, it's not just that Adam and Eve would physically die one day. They died, in one sense, the moment that they sinned. Their bodies became mortal. They started to to break down and became faulty. And so you and I face death in one way every single day because we get up and things don't go as we want them to. Things don't work properly. Our bodies are decaying and they're breaking down. But in that moment, when Adam and Eve sinned, they also experienced isolation from God. And that's what death does. As an intruder in this world, death separates that which goes together. You and I were intended to dwell with God in relationship with him. And death broke that relationship and caused a schism there. Death also breaks apart your physical body and your soul. 
Those were intended to go together. When you die, when a loved one passes away, their body is put into the ground and their soul goes either to be with God or not. And sometimes people will say things like they see that body there and they say, that's just the shell. That's not really, you know, whoever. That's not my loved one. It's not quite accurate. That actually is part of your loved one. The problem is that death has separated that which God intends to go together. You are your physical body and your soul. They go together. You're supposed to live as one. Body, soul, and spirit. They're meant to work together, and death separates that. And so death is a significant enemy for you and I. Death is powerful. Now, understanding death is vital to what Paul does and says in verse 54. So go back to the end of the chapter. Having that background is important. And look at verse 54. He basically repeats what he said in verse 53. And this is a summary almost of the whole chapter. And he says, when, now he's going to tell you when this change happens. Here's the outcome of this change. Here's some of the implications of this decisive change that's going to take place in your life. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now you can see there, hopefully in your Bible, part of verse 54 and 55 are set apart, telling you that these are a couple of quotes from the Old Testament. These are Old Testament passages that Paul is using here to make his point. Now, without going into all the background of these Old Testament passages, let me just tell you what Paul is doing here is he's personifying death. He's treating death like a person, like an individual, and he's doing this so that he can mock death. He can taunt death because it's lost its ability to have dominion over us. He uses these three questions to taunt it. Now, I used to play a lot of basketball when I was younger. And when you play basketball, there's nothing more infuriating than when your opponent is better than you. And he can take you to the basket and score on you anytime he wants to. And he knows he's better than you. And you know he's better than you. And he trash talks you. (laughs) And he taunts you. You call that a shot? What are you even doing out here? And there's nothing you can do about it. That's what Paul is doing here. He's taunting, personifying and taunting death here because death has no authority any longer. Death is swallowed up in victory. And I want to show you one of these Old Testament passages. He, he pulls this quote, death is swallowed up in victory out of it from Isaiah 25. And this text is looking forward to a time when everything will be made right. And look at the few verses surrounding this phrase, death is swallowed up in victory. Look what else will happen in the future. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. 
the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Death will be swallowed up in victory, and God will make everything right. Paul mocks death here because it is defeated through the death of Christ and because what actually gives death its power has been defeated as well. And that's our second outcome here. Death is defeated, but sin is also defeated. Look at the end of verse 55. He says, or just in verse 55, the whole thing, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Think of a scorpion that has had its stinger removed. That scorpion would try, it would get angry if you started messing with it, and it would try to sting you and try to sting you, but if it lost its stinger, then it didn't have the ability to do you any harm. That's exactly what has happened to death here. And so when you read that death has lost its sting, the question comes, what is death's sting? What is the venom that gives death its power. Look at verse 56. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Death came into the world as an intruder because of sin. Sin opened the door so that the intruder could come in. Listen to Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's exactly what happened. You know this story well. Now the entire human race has been confronted with this enemy, death, this armed thief, because of sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, and the good news on the, the back end of that, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the wages of sin, the outcome, the power of death is sin. It's what brings death about. Sin involves breaking God's commands. We transgress his law. It involves worshiping some aspect of creation, turning our attention from where it belongs Worshiping God to worshiping something that he has made. Sin is turning from trust in God and his word to self in pride and arrogance. Sin is all of those things. And our sin, those attitudes and actions, our sin is what has armed death and given it its sting. And Paul also says here, look in verse 56 again, the the power of sin is the law. The law... God's standards, his righteousness, only increased our awareness of sin and our participation in it. Listen to how this is described in Romans 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Our hearts are so sinful and so bent out of shape and corrupt that when we're confronted with God's holy commands, it actually makes us want to sin and break those commands even more. That's how wicked and how messed up we are. And so the law gives sin its power. 
The problem's not with the law. It's not bad. It's not corrupt. It's with us and our reaction and our response to the law. This is a picture I'm going to put up to help you grasp what this is like. This is human nature, right? This is what we do. The law is there. And man, I would like to play on that pipe. That's what Paul's talking about here. And so sin, sin is like the venom in the stinger. The stinger has been drained of its power and then removed here. So that sin no longer has power, no longer has venom, no longer has authority over us. And then death doesn't. How does that happen? That's the question. How do our hearts turn from wanting to break God's commandments to wanting to obey God's commandments? Verse 57. The third, the third outcome here is that final victory is won for us. Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The enemy has been defeated. The armed thief has been disarmed and thrown in prison. The scorpion has lost its sting. Victory has been won. But how exactly does Jesus accomplish this victory over sin and death? He's done these things, but how does it come about? How does he disarm sin and disarm death? Well, that's the gospel message that Paul has been proclaiming in this chapter. Look back at verse 3, chapter 15 and verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and here's that message, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. He died for our sins. When mankind sinned all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God put in motion a plan to set everything right and to overcome sin and to undo the authority of death in our lives right from the beginning. Death was an intruder and God would forcibly remove that intruder from his good world. And he set that plan in motion. And it culminated with Jesus Christ coming to earth living a sinless life, and dying a death that was undeserved on the cross for you and I. That's what Paul says here in verse 3. That's what he also says in 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God the Son, Jesus Christ, took sin on himself. He took that sting on himself, received the full judgment of God's just wrath over sin, even though he didn't deserve it. He was the sacrificial lamb for you and for me. And after suffering the penalty for sin, he rose from the grave three days later, defeating death, overcoming death, and showing that he had authority and he had power over it. Death could not hold him. He disarmed it. He nullified its sting as the God-man. He accomplished that. But I want you to look back at verse 57 and notice how it, it, Paul phrases this here. Back over to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. God gives us this victory through Christ. All of this happens. Death is disarmed. Sin loses its sting. Our response to the law is changed. All of that happens as a gift of undeserved divine grace. 
You can't do anything to earn that victory. You cannot be good enough, smart enough, rich enough, or unique enough to earn that victory over death. None of us are capable of that. It's like inheriting Bill Gates's fortune because your cousin married into his family. You did nothing to deserve that. It was a gift given to you out of no goodness of your own. It's a gift of family association. And our response to that offer of grace and of that gift is to repent of our sins and to believe and to trust in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. To say, I need that gift. I want that gift. I want that victory through Christ. Now, the other thing that's interesting about verse 57 and this victory is that we're anticipating it. It will be realized at some point in the future. It will be full. Death will no longer have any authority, any power over us. But this gift, the way Paul describes it here, it is sure and it is secure today for you. It's not something that you're only anticipating in the future. It's something that you absolutely have, and it's your possession through Jesus Christ today. And you can be confident in that. It's firm right now if you are united with Jesus Christ, if you are carried along in his death and his resurrection. And so what that means for your life today is that if you are in Christ and he has truly been raised from the dead, you don't have to fear death. The thief has been disarmed. The scorpion has lost its sting. And so you can confidently walk up to it and not worry and not fear and not have anxiety. You know you will pass away maybe 10, maybe 20, maybe 50 or 100 years down the road. But you don't need to be concerned about that. Death is an aberration, but death no longer has authority over you and I. You will pass from this life to the next, but you can do that with confidence if you're a believer in Jesus Christ because he's already won that victory for you. And it will be fully realized in the future. So death has no authority over you, but sin also can no longer dominate you. As you're walking through your daily life, sin can't control you any longer. Through Christ, you and I stand in this victory right now. Look back at 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 1 and 2 again. Now, would, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. You stand assured of this good news right now, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so because... We have these truths now. This victory now is sure and secure. Our daily lives are changed. And that brings us to our fourth outcome. Our daily work is transformed. Verse 58. Go back there. The end of the chapter. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This, therefore, brings the whole chapter to a conclusion and says, because of these realities, because of this victory, because of the fact that you will receive a new resurrection body and sin has lost its sting and death has been disarmed, you can live in this way now. 
Here are the implications for daily life now. Now look how he phrases this here. He says to be steadfast and immovable, and yet at the same time, we're to be abounding. How can you be immovable and also abounding at the same time? That's what Paul wants us to be. And I think the very way that we are steadfast and immovable is that we are fixated on the work of the Lord. And we never let anything divert us from doing the work of the Lord. We're steadfast in our abounding. Think of this steadfastness as the consistency, the immovability that it takes to climb Mount Everest. I have a little bit of a fascination with Mount Everest and people that climb Mount Everest. It's an unbelievable feat. It's just shocking that human beings are able to do that. And I don't know if you've ever read on this, but climbing Mount Everest is not something where you just start at the bottom and go all the way to the top. It takes six weeks, two months. It's a whole process of getting there, getting your gear ready, getting acclimated to the climate. You start at base camp which is a huge journey from the flight into Nepal to get to base camp. But base camp is 18,000 feet up. And you start at base camp and you get acclimated and then you go up on a short day's hike to camp one and then you go back down. And then you go up to camp two and you may spend the one night up there and then you come back down. And so you're always doing something and you're always moving and there's always activity even though it's not a straight ascent up to the top of the mountain. No matter what you're doing on your ascent, everything takes a great amount of steadfastness and immovability. And everything is focused on the ultimate goal of summiting Everest someday, off in the future, when you're there. So it doesn't matter where you're at on the mountain, everything is geared toward getting to the top and standing at the highest point in the world. And I think that's what Paul means here. You're steadfast, you're fixated on the task in front of you, which is the work of the Lord. Paul uses two terms here to describe what we're abounding in. He calls it the work of the Lord and our labor. And make no mistake about it, both of those words mean exactly what they say. It is work and it is labor. It is effort to accomplish the work of the Lord. We're to, we're to do that consistently. It's toil. It's hard work. But notice what that consistency keeps us from at the end of verse 58. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's nothing worse than laboring in vain. Digging a ditch and then filling that ditch in with dirt is laboring in vain. It accomplishes no purpose. And when we're abounding in the work of the Lord because of these resurrection truths, your labor in the Lord, your work, is never in vain. It's never pointless. If Christ has been raised, then even the smallest task that you do this week for him and in your work in the Lord is not in vain. Paul says back in verse 17 that if Christ is not raised, then our faith is vain. It's worthless. But if he is raised, then everything that you do, all of your work, means something. It has significance, no matter how insignificant you may think it is. So, keep serving in the nursery. I know sometimes it's like, I'm just, 
just watching babies in here. But that's work for the Lord. And because of the resurrection, that work is not in vain. Keep discipling your children. Keep praying for this church. Pray for the elders. Keep visiting widows. Keep loving your husband, even though it's difficult. <laughs> Keep speaking words of grace to your coworkers. Keep being kind and grace-filled. Do this work for the Lord because it's not in vain. It's purposeful. You're not digging a ditch and then filling it back up with dirt. Because of the resurrection, all of this has meaning and purpose because you and I and the people you're ministering to are going to be changed one day. But as you do that work, keep in mind that all of it is animated and empowered by the victory that Jesus Christ has over death. That's the whole point here. Because of the victory that he has accomplished over sin and death, now you can work for him. Your work matters because of his victory. So, those are the four outcomes. Let's go back to the quote we gave you at the beginning. If you cannot make sense of death, you cannot make sense of life either. And no philosophy that will not teach us how to master death is worth two pence to us. And based on what we've studied this morning, the Christian faith, as taught in the Bible has a very clear and thorough explanation of death. And it tells us how death has been conquered and has been mastered. And how we do not have to be afraid of it any longer. Victory has been won. And that dramatically, that victory dramatically alters the way I live my daily life. And so I have two questions for you as we finish up this morning. First, if you're not a believer, in Jesus Christ. If you're not, if this victory has not been accomplished on your behalf this morning, what does your life philosophy teach you about death and about mastering death? If it doesn't instruct you in that, and I don't think anyone, uh, any other philosophy or religion does in the way that Christianity and the Bible does, because this is true, if it doesn't, maybe it's time to reevaluate. Because it's shaping the way you live your life today. Secondly, if you are a believer this morning and a member of this church, are you consciously living in verse 58? Are you looking to the resurrection of Christ and the victory that he's accomplished over sin and death as the empowering force in your service for him? Are these truths, these gospel truths, shaping the way you do your work for him, no matter what it may be? Are you living in this therefore of verse 58? Let's pray. Father, these are weighty matters. We're talking about the big questions. Death. What is life for? What happens after death? And because you are the creator and you are the Lord over everything, you have given us very clear answers in your word. And we're so thankful for that. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to bump our way down a dark hallway, tripping over philosophies 
and religions and trying to figure out what's at the end, you have turned the lights on. And through Jesus Christ, you have shown us exactly what we can expect and exactly how to live in light of that. And so I pray this morning for those who don't know you, that you would use these words from 1 Corinthians to penetrate their hearts and to help them understand what philosophy they're living and basing their lives on and how Christ is the only answer to the questions of death and life after death and how to live today. And for the believers here, Lord, myself included, I pray that you would shape our understanding of our work, of our toil, of the way we live life today by these resurrection truths. Death has been defeated. Sin has been overcome. Final victory is ours, and it's ours today. And so help us to live in light of that. We thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for your grace, even in our time together this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.